Hello and welcome to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast, the conversation at the crossroads of faith and psychedelics. I'm Clint, your host, and I'm thankful and excited that you've chosen to join us. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Episode 5 of the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. If this is your first episode of the podcast, I welcome you and encourage you to investigate previous episodes, especially Episode 1, to get a complete understanding of our goals and intentions for the show. I'm very thankful for those of you who continue to reach out to me via email with your kind words. I'm glad you are enjoying the podcast and I appreciate the encouragement. For anyone who is interested in contacting me, that address is contact at thepsychedelicchristianpodcast.com. And if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to visit us on the Apple Podcast app. Even if that's not your preferred platform, it's still the largest, and your five-star rating and review will help others find the podcast. Our guest in this episode is the Reverend Hunt Priest, and I'm excited to share his experience and mission with you today. Today, we welcome Reverend Hunt Priest to the podcast. Hunt is a former rector of St. Peter's Episcopal Church in Savannah, Georgia. Hunt is founder and executive director of Lagare, focusing on the healing power of psychedelics in a legal Christian framework. Hunt was also a participant in the Johns Hopkins and New York University Psilocybin for Religious Leaders study in 2016. Hunt is joining us today from his home in Savannah, Georgia. Reverend Hunt Priest, welcome to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome, Clint. It's really great to be here. This is such an honor. So thank you for inviting me. Can't wait for the conversation. Well, the honor is ours, sir. So if you don't mind, why don't you just begin by telling us a little bit about your Christian influences and what that led you to in career and family and how that ultimately culminated in you becoming a priest in the Episcopal Church. Great. With the last name Priest, which is a little odd. I have to. Um, so I grew up in a small town in Kentucky near Lexington, a small town named Mount Sterling, Kentucky. Uh, in a family of four, I have one brother, and we were church-going people. Uh, we weren't extreme in that. We were there most Sundays. And uh, first, I grew up as a younger child in the Disciples of Christ Church, which is a fairly open and progressive denomination. And then uh, over time, uh, started going with my grandmother to the Episcopal Church, the local Episcopal Church. And uh, I'd say I had a very fairly conventional for the 70s and early 80s church life, uh, youth group and uh, church most Sundays, children's choir. But again, it, it was it was part of our life. It wasn't the, exactly at the center of it, but it was a part of certainly an important part of our life. And uh, then I went off to college and uh, took a job with Delta Airlines and moved to Atlanta and thought I was beginning a big corporate career. Stayed at Delta uh, for nine years and left that and went to work in advertising as a copywriter. And always with this underlying sense that I wanted to go to seminary and be an Episcopal priest. I didn't really verbalize that very much. That's a common story. 
I think for a lot of us that are second career clergy, we wrestled with it and uh, hoped it would go away. At the time in my mid thirties, a member of an Episcopal church in Atlanta called Church of the Holy Comforter. 80% of the congregation lives with severe and persistent mental illness. So very unique congregation where the mental illness is not tucked away, but is out front and uh, very obvious. And the church community was not just inclusive of people that were mentally ill, but they were the church for the most part. They, The church community supported each other and the diocese supported that church. And there was an arts program and a organic garden and uh, uh, writing, poetry, wood turning. And there was it was a community of people who did not care about their diet. We did not care about a diagnosis. We cared about healing. And so that was my first experience of a church community where we all didn't act like everything was okay. It was very You could not hide from the fact that 80% of the church lived in group homes that pretty severe mental illness in some cases, mostly controlled, but there would be outbursts sometimes or people would get up in the middle of the sermon and go smoke a cigarette without apology. It was just real and very, it was a wonderful place. And it was there that I finally, at least in my mind, decided or thought that the church can be a community of honesty and healing and a a force for change and acceptance in the world. I, I just had that awareness. So I went off to discern to call to the priesthood in the formal way we do in the Episcopal Church and went off to seminary in Austin, Texas, and was there three years, came back to Atlanta area, was at a, a congregation south of Atlanta, a town called Noonan, Georgia. Then three years after that, moved to Seattle for eight years, and it was there on a uh, it was the fall, so that means it was raining and cold and dark in Seattle. And I was at home reading uh, the Christian Century, the progressive twice a month journal of progressive Protestant Christianity. And there was an article and an ad for a study at Johns Hopkins looking for religious professionals to be in a study about psilocybin, the magic ingredient in magic mushrooms. There were two things about that. I had never done psychedelics, so I was interested. i not interested in my younger days, but I was a little interested. And here was somebody in the academy that cared what clergy thought about anything. So that was intriguing. And I was at a point that I needed some new ideas. So I applied. They flew me to Baltimore. I was accepted into the study. Two months later, I was back at Hopkins uh, in the treatment room, which looks like a living room. and found myself um, receiving pharmaceutical grade psilocybin in a chalice and uh, went off on a journey. So. Wow. Um, interesting. I would like to back up a little bit. You said okay. something about what you perceived as your call to the priesthood with a certain amount of trepidation. And um the reason I ask that, because I've heard that before from many people who serve in the clergy, it's as though there's a call, not as extreme, but almost like the prophet Jonah. So like there's this, there's this call, but you resist that call because for a multitude of reasons, maybe you have like imposter syndrome, you think you're not good enough, you think you're not 
you, you don't want to be a public figure. Um, maybe you already have a cushy job, you know, so what, uh, like, how did that feel? Like you, uh, like, how did you, how did you vet that, that call, that struggle yeah. to the priesthood? That's a great thing. That's a really good question. Um, and a uh, meaningful question for me. Um, I think all those reasons, I mean, I think that, like you said, people have a multitude of reasons. A lot of it is just not wanting to give up where you are. I mean, part of it is it's easier to stay, easier to stay where you are than it is to pick up and move. Like, like lots of stories in scripture about people doing that. And there's usually some resistance. And there's usually a resistance to our calling. And I, I think that's pretty, scripture sort of indicates that too. It's not just clergy, all of us have a vocation. We resist our true vocation because it causes us, if it's true, it causes us to have to let go of some a persona and a way of living. And in the case of the Episcopal Church, it affects for most of us, our families, our spouses, our children, even our parents and siblings. I mean, it, it's, a, it, it's not just the person. And so there's all those factors. And um, it's a lot of responsibility to be, to care for the souls of people. I mean, people can take that too extreme. It's not about me. I, it's not about me as the priest. It's God's working through me. But that's, even that is a lot of responsibility. And it should be. It's a, it's a, people should take it very seriously. So in the Episcopal Church, there's a discernment process. It's not just, oh, I think I'm called to be a minister. There's that. And then the church says, all right, do we need, does the church need your gifts? Do your gifts match the needs of the church and the world? And that's the, for some people, the answer is no. In my case, the answer was not yet, which was, ex I wasn't quite ready. And it, another year of spiritual direction and reflection, and then I was ready, which was a gift of that discernment process. So, And there's often an educational component that you have to commit to as well, oh, yeah. I'm sure. Oh, yeah, it's a three-year master's program. You, I mean, for most of us, we move. I moved from Atlanta to Austin. And there's, yeah, it's it's graduate school on top of everything else. And at 37, which is what I was, that's, going back to school is not, that's also, you know, and not, you can't work. Most of us didn't work, so we made it work. And the seminary helps make it work. But, uh, yeah, you're you're giving up a lot and you're going out into the unknown in a way. Yeah, that, that sounds like a common experience for people who've, yeah. especially people who are second career, um, like yourself. Right. right. But, you know, a lot of us aren't ready to receive that kind of responsibility as a young person. You know, it mm -hmm. takes it takes years of living in the Christian life before you are able to kind of vet your own gifts and your own sometimes just willingness to what degree you want to serve God. In my uh, time at the Presbyterian Church, I was called to the diaconate, and that didn't require, you know, a lot of sacrifice on my part as far as career and family and an educational commitment and things of that nature. But it was a huge time commitment. If you had asked me if I was willing to give up that much time as a as a 22 year old as opposed to say a 32 year old, I wouldn't have been able to make that commitment. But as an older person, not that 32 is older, however old I was at that moment. You know, it, it seemed like a reasonable thing to do at that point. Yeah. I think it would, it's unique 
if a person is ready to make that kind of commitment as a college age student, uh, most of us have to work in the trenches a little while, you know, right. to discern where God's calling us uh, to work uh, on his behalf. And sometimes that's as a professional. Right. And, or in your case, or leadership, a leadership role in any community, but especially in a religious community is a lot of responsibility. And that's, that's what you were invited into and you accepted that calling. And, uh, we should take those things. We should take it very seriously because leadership in a spiritual community means people are going to look up to you. And the other side of that, the shadow side of that is they're going to, there's going to be resistance and people project a lot of things on the leaders. And that's not just ordained. That's everybody's. So you're serving their Seattle area mm -hmm. and you happen to come upon this study. What did you think about that? It's interesting. That's that's also an interesting part. The summer before, a friend had sent it to me. He'd seen it, and he'd sent an email, and I saw it and forgot. And uh, it's almost like you have to hear a message a couple of times. It's kind of like call to the priesthood or something. You got to hear it multiple times. And I I was just ready to hear it, I guess. So I was at home reading a magazine, and uh, uh, there it was—a very nondescript ad and an article that I saw later. But I saw the ad first. I thought to myself. Why is everyone not doing this? That's honestly, that's like, why would everyone not do this? I better get on it because everybody's going to want to do this. And the truth is hardly anybody wanted to. So I checked with my wife about it. Maybe after I'd sent it. Yeah, I just thought this seems like the perfect opportunity to do something I've never done before. And I Easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and she was fine. She was like, okay, that's what you want to do. I would have done it had I known where it was going to, where I'd be right now. I had no idea what it would entail, what it would mean for my own religious and spiritual life, what it would mean for vocation. I had no idea. I just thought I was going to Baltimore twice to do something I'd never done before that was legal except there. Illegal. What do you think made you open to that? I'm kind of careless and I'll just, I'm up for an adventure. That's just kind of, a, it's a personality thing, I think. I'm not careless, but. If, if it seems like a fairly safe thing to do, I'm going to do it. <laughs> so right. I'm just, I, I can, uh, can sympathize. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not afraid of too much and I'm pretty sensible. So I think I'm a pretty good, I'm not going to do anything totally careless, but I'm also not going to sit. If I think it's time to jump, I'm going to jump. So, and it seemed like such an, it really, and it was such an opportunity. I had no idea what an opportunity it was. But once I met the people there at Hopkins, God, it was the best thing, best decision I ever made. Prior to that, what would you have thought about psychedelics or psychedelic culture? Like, what was your perspective? You know, you're already a priest, you're serving. Mm -hmm. What, like, how did you view, I mean, you were kind of on the West Coast in an environment that, that culturally accepted those things more casually than say, you know, back home in Kentucky. Right, right. But but at, at the same time, how did you how did you perceive psychedelic substances and psychedelic culture and what impact did that, that have on your your willingness to participate in such thing? Yeah, that's good. So I, I was born in 1964 and graduated from high school in 82. So I was old enough to remember maybe the early 70s. I remember people that had we sort of knew they used LSD. They would have been older high school kids or college kids. So, and I and I certainly inherited all the opinions, political and otherwise, about what the '60s meant. I mean, I, I didn't have a negative view of that, but really, but 
I mean, it was in my mind, it was very tied to hippies and counterculture. And again, not that I was had a negative feeling, but that it felt very contained in a certain time. And I was around psychedelics in college. I, did, I had friends that I remember them saying it's just mushrooms, and I remember saying, "Yeah." Now LSD would have been a different matter, but uh, and I it wasn't like I hadn't smoked pot, and it wasn't like I didn't drink. But psychedelics were a different class, it seemed to me, of drugs. The war on drugs was effective, and for my generation, a lot of us, that image of the egg on the skillet was sort of seared into our heads. And I knew the war on drugs. I knew the just say no. I was I did know that was ridiculous, even then. And then I got on with my life, and I just it, then the opportunities weren't there. I also was seeing what was going on with cannabis. I mean, I was in Washington State, where it's where it was legal. I didn't smoke it. I guess I didn't have a negative. I didn't have a totally negative feeling. I was apathetic about psychedelics, probably. And I didn't know what the potential was. And it seemed like the risk was uh, outweighed the benefits, which I thought was just party. I, I, in my mind, it was something you did at a party. And I already knew how to have a drink at a party. So I didn't think I needed to do that. So that's probably the truth, honestly, is I just didn't think I needed to do that. All right. It was just kind of off your radar. It, right, wasn't, it wasn't right. relevant to your life. Yeah. No, right. Yeah. No. Yeah. no. So you you read this article and you think, why wouldn't everybody participate in this? And so you contact them. And at that point, 2016, I guess they've really, you're, you're probably early in the process. I assume. Early, right. So they're probably eager to have a participant. I, I go with guess. <laughs> they were. Yeah. They, well, again, in my mind, we were still having, I've thought, there's going to be so many people. Uh, and I didn't know the timeline, but yeah, I was early and uh, they were having trouble. Even they were having trouble finding people that they had a few rabbis, but they were having real trouble finding rabbis because they were having trouble finding rabbis who hadn't done it. A certain generation who hadn't done psychedelics, because one of the requirements is that you're psychedelically naive, which means you haven't done them. So uh, and I think for a lot of Christians, maybe older boom, maybe boomer Christians, they had done it and couldn't be in the study or if they were my age or younger they probably hadn't done them so uh they just, and weren't going to so it was still it was a struggle filling that study up it really was which i hope that will never be the case again because it's been such a powerful uh, well at the same time it distills a certain segment of the population you know i mean you know if it hadn't been so difficult to find participants uh you you might have never you, you wouldn't have made it into the study, you know, exactly, it would have been, exactly. It would have followed up. So the fact that it was that people were reluctant to participate probably was why that door was still open, you know, when you, right. right. But yeah. you're right. The, the, I think that the war on drugs probably had a, a dampening effect on people's willingness to participate in such a thing. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't want to dismiss those in that movement who had really good intentions. Right. You know, people who wanted to spare pain and the lives of people. I think we're seeing the fruits of a misguided effort now. Yeah. Right. And, and so I think that's why the door is open for conversation about this topic now. Right. And thank you for thank you for that, too, because I think the concern at the like at that cultural moment of just say no was there was a real concern about addiction. So. I mean, I think we got there with not the most, always the most positive reasons, but I think in that cultural moment, there was grave concern about addiction. We weren't real clear about what was addicted and what wasn't. 
And the most addictive drug we have is alcohol, and we weren't dealing with that. So, and the fact that psychedelics are not addictive, it was never that that was a lie about psychic about the addictive nature of even LSD. It's just not true. So, there was misinformation. Much of it, much of the movement guided by a desire to help people be safe and and sober in the best sense of that, which is to be uh, present and eyes wide open to the reality of the world and not compromised or addicted, which is which is a very negative place to be. So that I think you're right. Thank you for that, because it, it's not all it's not all nefarious and it, obviously and it wasn't all because people were being racist or classist. There were there were reasons for the concern, real reasons. Right. And there were there, but true, but there were elements, as you would acknowledge, of racism and classism and anti-war movement and so all that. It, it's such a it's such a web of oh, yes. of of concern and love and hate and taxes. And I mean, it's just this it's a very convoluted situation. For me, it's easier just to to view it that way as a very as a very complicated situation and not try to parse out and blame it for all of our current ills, oh, right. you know, and, and to recognize that in any movement that's kind of political and religious, you're going to have a multitude of ambitions involved. Some of those are good and some of them are, are not. And so it, it's no great wonder it's turned out in this very complicated and confusing way. Right. Yeah. Well, let's, let's detour off that and get back to your experience. So okay. I, I spoke to James Lindbergh um, in episode three, and he kind of described the, uh, the setting. It was, a, you know, a very well-contained, comfortable living room-like setting where, with, where you had competent guides to help you and assist you. I assume you experienced the same thing in that regard. Yeah. Competent wise, the way that they make people feel comfortable, I wish the church could learn how to do that. I mean, I wish we could, or in any setting, I just, several encounters with them that each time there was a deepening sense of safety and being a part of something important and the level of commitment for the people on the team. Then it was a small team and it's gotten bigger now, but the core team there was as open and as welcoming and as kind and compassionate as any anybody any group of people I've ever been associated with and I think all of them are still there for the most part so yeah the the, the level of comfort and safety was extraordinary competence I mean there was no question that they knew what they were doing and it is Johns Hopkins so but right. beyond that so that's an immediate surface level acceptance but or competence but lower than that uh, deeper than that is the people and remarkable, remarkable from the intake people to the support people, to the guides, to the director. I felt like I was much a part of something important and it turns out, I think it is. So I believe, I believe so. Yeah. Well, can you, you can either describe it in terms, I mean, I, it's my understanding that you had, you had two separate journeys, but you can either it, to the best of your ability or memory, you can describe those separately, or you can come, you can elaborate on your experience based on a kind of a collective experience idea. Okay. If you don't mind, if you could kind of take us through sure. um, what, what your experience was and, and maybe what, what you gleaned from it. Sure. I, I think I'm going to do the, I'm going to 
combine them. I mean, because there was a similarity to them. And um, uh, mine was very religious. My experience was very religious. It was very Christian. It was very sacramental. And it was also universal in a way. I mean, it wasn't limited to Christian imagery, although that was mostly what I experienced. It was mostly physical in a way. It was, I think, so much of our Christian practice these days is all in our head. I know I was there as a somebody that preached all the time and taught, and I thought it had to be all intellectual. So, or I thought a lot of it had to be, and yet, and yet I had always tried to have a meditation practice. Always tried to be quiet and write, and had a contemplative way about me, but. So I, that was there, but the lesson I got, one of the big lessons I got was, this is about your body, and God's about your body, and you better pay attention to your body, because it tells you a lot that you're missing. And so I had been at a meditation retreat the year before, and 10-day meditation retreat, silent meditation retreat, on about day six. Uh, I felt a circular spiral energetic field in my left thigh. A day six of silent six hours a day meditation. It was about to send me over the edge. And I had that experience and I thought, this is what I came for. I don't know what this is, but it's important. And I stayed and I finished the retreat and kind of forgot about that experience. A year later, I'm on the sofa at Hopkins I've about an hour into a psychedelic experience. I've seen colors and the music's beautiful and the music shifts to a uh, drum beat and a chant. And something about that triggered a very physical response in my body that began with the circular energetic field on my left thigh, exactly the same place. I remembered that. I thought six days into that, an hour into this let's see where this this is real let's see where this goes and i let my i gave myself over to the experience i thought i'd already done that but i hadn't i gave myself over to it because i experienced it i experienced something i didn't understand i trusted the people that were leading me and so for the next i don't know how long hour and a half i had a, an electrical current going through my body that started at the base of my spine and it moved up my spine to my throat where it stopped for a long time. I struggled. I was had this real guttural, not a scream because I couldn't scream because I had this block in my throat, but it was a uh, kind of sound. My guides realized I was struggling. They let me struggle for a little while. And uh, in my mind, whatever this was in my throat was going to blow out my Adam's apple. That's what I was thinking, which is kind of a scary thing to have happen and uh i knew i was i knew where i was but i also knew this was happening so at one point one of my guides laid hands on my head like i've done lots of times in church or in prayer for people for healing and at that point the energetic the energetic current went up a thousand percent and whatever that was in my throat it didn't go away completely but it cleared and the current went out my head and into the world. And that continued to happen for a long time, an hour maybe. And it felt at times like I was in labor. It felt at times like I was um, 
being transported out of my body, but mostly I felt in my body and I felt this electrical current coursing through my body. It's a waking dream. So I would get up to take my eye shades off, go to the bathroom, come back, pick right back up where I left off. So it was consistent and dependable. And, uh, I realized that I'd had a direct experience of the Holy Spirit in my body. That's how I came to understand it as an electrical, energetic force that I spoke in tongues. That was part of that. I've made these sounds. I'm just, I'm going to assume that's what I was doing because I have no other way to explain it. Uh, it felt like it was coming from God and it made no sense to me in the speaking of it. And then the second session is part of that same experience, similar. I've, hour and a half in I get up to go to the bathroom and I say to my guides well I guess that's not going to happen again we we'd already talked about it it was very dramatic I guess that's not going to happen again I went to the bathroom came back as soon as I got back on the sofa it picked up again the electrical current it wasn't blocked then I was shaking and and I was vibrating couldn't get comfortable got on my stomach I felt myself rocking as I've sometimes seen Jewish Jewish men pray with a rock and I recognized that. And then it was at some point I turned over on my stomach on the sofa and I had my forehead on the mat on the, on the sofa and our arms were out in the, what we would call the prostrate position. And I thought, Oh, 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 this is my ordination. And I, I was ordained priest in the Episcopal church, which meant I had, in my case, knelt before a bishop. Many people will lie flat on their stomachs. I didn't do that. But in the moment I did that in that space, I thought my ordination is being completed. That was this that was the sacramental liturgical sent principal priest. That's what I think about things that way. And that was my experience with the psychedelics, grounded in my own experience of living. So all of us. I don't think I, I know not everyone's going to would come to have that sort of experience. So our experiences are grounded in our own life experience. And for religious people, I think it's I hope it's grounded in our own religion. But it changed everything I thought about the Holy Spirit, everything I thought about the power of healing prayer and touch, what I thought about ordination, what I thought about um, certainly what I thought about the Holy Spirit, which to me it was a sort of passive which is crazy to say that it's a little embarrassing to say that, but that's what I thought. It was a passive. I didn't doubt that people spoke in tongues. I didn't think that I knew that wasn't for me. And uh, I thought there was some not always authentic and maybe there's not, but it was real for me. And I never will never think of those experiences again in the same way. I know something now I didn't know before, which is the Holy Spirit moves through the world as an energetic field and it's in us and it moves through us and it can heal us it does it can't i can it does heal us if we're open to it and the touch of another person on a i think you know some people would say a chakra point but i'll say you touch people in certain parts of our bodies and something happens because there's energy there that's not it's concentrated energy and there's constant there's a reason we lay hands on people on their heads Right. That's wisdom we know from long before even religion. That's innate knowledge. So we've forgotten it. So that was long. But that, that was, those are my, the takeaways from my experiences are about the Holy Spirit and the power of healing and the power of ritual. 
that is powerful, sir. Um, Thank you. I, yeah. I appreciate it's powerful it. saying it. Thank you. It was, yeah, I hadn't I hadn't told it like that in a while. So that was thank you. It means a lot. I, I try not to delve into my own experiences on on here. I want this to be about my guests. No, experience, I but you're the first person that's ever related uh, that energetic transaction mm -hmm. in the in the way that I experienced it as a young man. I experienced that. I felt like a vessel that spiritual energy was moving through, and it it came from the bottom up. Mm -hmm. So, in my circumstance, I was in a in a cow pasture barefoot, <laughs> but at midnight with the full moon, but. Um, I felt that energy coming up through the earth and through my head into wherever it was going. I, yeah. I can only assume it was, it was divine I energy. Right. Yeah. I, I've, I've experienced that. I'd almost actually almost forgotten it until you, you mentioned that. So very interesting. That's um, that. Let's talk, let's stay there a second. Cause I think that. If we that, must. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not, I won't focus on you. I no, mean, no. But yeah, I'm I, fine. I'm fine. You're well. If, if you have questions for me, you're welcome to ask. I do. I just. I think I'm that. I, mean, I think I'm jealous of being outside under a full moon. That's pretty cool. But uh, even that, there, I mean, the energy of the moon and what we know about that. But but I think one of the problems in Christianity, as we currently practice it, is it's disconnected from the earth and from nature, and and we somehow uh, forget that we are made of the earth and we're stardust i mean the the elements of the earth are in us and somehow there i mean there's energy and in, in we know there's energy in innate matter and we know there's energy in us and we know there's energy in the universe and it's all the same energy experienced whether we're a rock or a cow out in the pasture or a human being we experience that energy differently but it's the energy is the same and um it's a, as far as I'm concerned, it's the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's the language that the Christians use, and other people can use different language, but that's the language I use for it. Yeah, and, even things we consider solid inanimate objects on a molecular level, those things are twisting and turning and vibrating. Everything in the universe, and even those things we perceive as solid and inanimate, are actually fluid, energetic embodiments. I, I, I guess you're yeah. right. The only thing I can conclude is that the motivating force is spiritual. Mm -hmm. And I would assume it doesn't really matter what kind of origin perspective you come from. You can't argue that that those things are fluid and there is a motivating force that we haven't been able to quantify. Mm -mm. So mm. I'm yeah. chalking that up to the Holy Spirit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the attraction that 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 energy, I mean, energy attracts energy and moves through. Yeah, I'm out of too much, too far into physics or something. I'll be out of my realm. But, um, but it's it's not well. the physics teach us if we could just relax a minute. I mean, as Christians, physics teach us much about our spirituality. Just what you, inanimate objects ha, are alive with the energy of God. You just can't see it. They're vibrating. We just, it's just, so, it's much more subtle and we're vibrating. I'm vibrating now, even though I'm not, you can't tell I am, but I am. Science tells us a lot that we are not paying attention to. And I would say we have a lot to tell, say to science that they're not paying attention to because we've gotten ourselves in this dualistic place where those, the twain shall never meet. But 
it's meeting in psychedelics. I'll tell you that because the benefits of psychedelics for mental health are coming from mystical experiences. I may be wrong. I think the reason never the twain shall meet is probably due to ego. Oh yeah. On both sides. Oh yeah. Um, yep. an, a, a, an unwillingness to receive truth from either side. I think that that stunts our spiritual and our scientific growth. Right. An unwillingness to receive revealed truth from each other. Right. Yeah. There was a time that the church was, I mean, they call theology the queen of the sciences. And there was a time that there were priests were scientists. I mean, it was a very, in some ways, not, it wasn't our modern science, but there was a lot of scientific thought coming out of the church and through the church, and it became threatening. And we, we, they decided that you take this part and we'll take this part. And that was a terrible divorce. Absolutely. Yeah. I do my best not to feel threatened by the position of others. Right. You know, if you can just, even if you disagree, if you can just witness someone else's experience or allow them to verbalize something that they perceive is true that you may disagree with and just let that sit, you know, let it ferment. You don't have to snuff it out. You don't have to run at it and, and attack it. Give it time for consideration. Maybe it will inform your perspective. Mm-hmm. I think it's about patience right. and, and a willingness to, to learn. Right. Uh, yeah. I've been, I've been reading it, not lately, but in the last couple of years, been reading a lot of, a lot more, little more physics and more sort of cosmology. And, and it's changed how I think about spirituality and religion. And we still operate, even though we know, we know that it's not, we know that it's not heaven, earth, hell. We know there's not these three levels of, universe and yet often in church we turn off what we know in the rest of our life and we let it be a this very simplistic model and yet we know the universe is expanding and growing and moving at speeds we can't even understand and the expansiveness of the universe we need to be expansive we need that's what we need to learn is we we need to grow and evolve where the universe is expanding out and wide and up where is God in that? That's the question. We understand where God is in the three levels of this other way, but where is God in what we know is the universe in this expansion and the energy that propels that? Is that God? You know, is that so is God mixed up in that? And I would say yes. I don't know exactly how, but well, I feel like just like there's a limit to our language being able to contain the psychedelic experience, I think anyone who's been honest about their spiritual experience has struggled with the ability to embody that in language. Like mm-hmm. if I tried to explain to you in language, the first time I felt as maybe a nine-year-old in the Baptist church hearing just as you are, or, you know, one more time, the altar call, you like, you feel that experience, you know, um, mm-hmm. Words really fail to convey the kind of the kind of intimate spiritual passion that you're feeling and wrestling with. Mm-hmm. And so I just feel like it's a failure of our ability to verbalize our spiritual experience. Mm-hmm. And that, that I think that is uniquely yoked to the psychedelic experience. I mean, you summed up like 12 hours of psychedelic experience in like three minutes there. And part of me wants to just say, no, go back to hour seven. Like what was going on there? You know, and I'm not going to do that to you because you probably can't verbalize yeah. it. Um, yeah. 
that's one thing I find funny. Anytime you watch a documentary or something on psychedelics, they always show these bizarre, uh, hippie dippy, um, very fluid neon colors. And they're trying to achieve something with videography and theater that that really is impossible to convey in visual images and verbal language. Mm-hmm. So it always comes across as a little bit sophomoric and humorous. Right. And it, ne- it never really seems to resonate, you know, in a powerful, deeply take home kind of way. Even when it's a good, when it's a good quality documentary or something, it just seems to fail to resonate. Right. You know, if you've actually been there. Right. Right. Well, I, how did your experience inform your faith, your career, your relationships from that point forward? So you leave Johns Hopkins with this experience and you're going back to your congregation, back to your home life. Right. How did you integrate that? How did it inform your thoughts and actions in, in the years you know following? Well, yeah, uh, there was one side benefit of this, which is more psychological. I think it's all psychological and spiritual. But one of the side benefits that I only realized after the fact was I had some very serious anxiety at, the, at that time. And it, it was 2016, there was some things. My wife was very sick. We had a young child. I was working too much. And I'd been working with a therapist, which I just always do. But And he coded it anxiety disorder. And I thought, well, that's just what he's doing because it's insurance and you got to do that. And I knew I was anxious. But when I came back from that, the week, the day I came back from the first there, I had no anxiety. It was gone. That kind of repetitive paranoia, there, it was just gone. And I felt so grounded in my body and so not thinking about trying to plan three steps ahead of everybody. I knew I was different. I remember telling my wife, I'm different. And she said, no, you're not. Because <laughs> it had to integrate. It had, and I wasn't outwardly. I was very different inwardly. It took a while for the outward part to integrate. But uh, I came back from that first session and I'd been in Seattle eight years by then, almost eight years. And I realized I wasn't finished with the people. I realized I'd done the work I was called there to do because I got a friend sent me the job description for a position in Savannah. I read it. It was more like where I was leaving than I thought I would go to next. And I knew when I read it that it was probably the position that I was called to. I went into that process completely open without any anxiety, and I ended up coming to Savannah that later that summer. But I had such a peace about it all that I would in the past would not have had. So a sense of peace, a sense of God's presence and working in my life, not directing my life, but working in my life. And over time, began to interact with my wife and son in a much different way, more present because the anxiety takes over and you can't be present because you're worried that what's going to happen tomorrow at work or what what's going to happen in some other situation. So a peace that came over me after that was profound and a sense of purpose and a sense that my own practice as a priest, the things that seemed a little empty to me, which would often be laying hands on people seemed a little empty to me or uh, Sometimes the liturgy seemed empty to me. It all became very alive again, like it had been when I first started. So uh, 
I began to slow down with my prayers. I began to hold more silence when I prayed with people. I put my hands on people on their heads more than I used to. And before I thought, well, we need to touch each other. And yes, we need to pray with each other. But this is really kind of perfunctory thing I'm doing to lay hands on them. It just reminds them that we're connected. But I came to understand that there's a transference of energy that happens because that would have been my experience. The healing is in God's hands, but I can be a vessel of that. Or I can be a conduit of that. So that's what I, that's what I came to know. So yeah. So and I, I began to preach about uh, mystical experiences in a new way. I didn't say I, at that time, didn't say I'd had a mystical experience with psychedelics, but I said I had this experience, presence of the Holy Spirit in my body, and people, people connected to that. And it gave them permission, in some cases, to share stories they'd had, similar experiences they'd had. Because beforehand, they, for whatever reason, didn't feel like that was legit. You know, here I am saying I've had this experience. Not that I'm an expert on that, but I was willing to say this is real. It was real to me, and I think it's real. So I came, yeah, this whole sense of energy and the spirit and the power of healing prayer and the power of prayer and healing, and that spiritual healing brings about physical healing and mental healing. It's all connected, which I knew intellectually, but now I knew it experientially. So right. I knew it instead of believing it. That's the other thing. I knew it. I believed it before, sort of, but I knew it. I knew it. All right. Fortunately, I feel like God is using us as his vessels, even when our hearts and minds may not be in it at the moment. You know, um, clergy bank on it. Yeah, yeah, but that's right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. All of us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you're a human being and, you know, you may be standing there at the altar and, you know, your heart is breaking because, you know, your best friend passed away. Right. But in that moment, you're God's minister to these people. And he's channeling through you, whether maybe your heart's somewhere else at the moment. That's right. But to feel that powerful energy as though it were in that new way that you experienced yeah. it maybe as a, as a, as a young priest, I, I can imagine that being refreshing and, ener and energizing. Yeah. Oh yeah. So I, I, I remembered again, the power of, of gatherings. I remember the, again, the power of spirit and the power of touch. One of my favorite parts of being a priest is a communion slight physical connection you have with people when you put, well, not, not now with COVID, but before you had a physical connection with people with the wafer in the hand and the peace. It's another, like in our tradition, Catholic church, others, the peace is, but what if we understood the peace as both a greeting and a transference of the spirit, the energy of the Holy Spirit between back and forth. That's how I came to think of it. Because I had such a powerful experience of hands on my head and the touch of my guides when I was open to this electrical current. And I think that's happening. We're just not aware of it. And if, if the veil lifts for a minute or six hours in my case, and you can know it instead of just thinking it or turn, you know, saying, I believe that you can know it. Most people probably would have said I was not that different as a priest, but I knew I, I knew what I was doing. I knew in a deeper level that I was doing what I was doing was more than just the words and the actions. It was there was also my body. Yeah, not empty formalities. You were actually not, functioning not, right as a as a, a vessel of God's ministry to people. Right, right, coming through me in a in some way from the Spirit. That that's what was channeling through me. 
And that maybe that sounds new agey and woo woo, and I, that's fine. But it really, I think it's scriptural. But I think sounds kind of orthodox to me. I don't know. <laughs> you know I mean, it sounds like yeah, I mean, that's, that's true. That's the, that's your that's job, right. you know. That's uh, right, you know, right. For that hour right. of the week, you're there. Uh, you're God's representative on the third rock from the sun here. And, right, right, right. Exactly. I, I kind of came to understand my the what happened to me with the, with the psilocybin. It opened up a receiver. It, it, I felt like I was receiving something, and I began to think of myself at the altar as, as like a radio antenna or something that picks up a signal and just carry, lets it move through me, and then I, in words or actions or touch, let other people, they can, they've got their own antenna, but mine was up and operating, so let's let this, let's let's take advantage of that. So right. Wow, there's a thousand oh. rabbit trails I'd r- love to run down <laughs> regarding all that. Uh, how? Do, but what about your relationships with you know fellow clergy? Like, how could you? So you had this very powerful experience. How were you able to relate that to your you know your equals, uh, so to speak, yeah. in the, in the professional way? And were they able to receive that? That must have been, I guess, challenging. Yeah, I yeah I. I tried a couple times. I, this so this was five years ago. So it was before Michael Pollan's book came out. It was before all the podcasts. It was before that Hopkins wasn't hiding anything, but they also weren't putting it out there too much. So after the study, I was fired up. Like I was, I was on fire for it. And I, and I told a few clergy colleagues. I told a few friends. Mostly got either. I mean, nobody criticized me for it, but I got mostly blank stares and then, hey, what are we going to have for dinner? Or let's go get a cup of coffee. It was like, let's avoid that topic. I had a very close friend in the study with me, so he and I talked a lot about it. And then I connected with a therapist um, who'd been trained as an inter- with by MAPS for integration therapy. So I worked with her, still work with her now. But um, so then I had her to talk to and... Um, but it was a lonely, it was lonely. And some of the people in the study never had anybody to talk to about it. So, uh, but Michael Pollan's book came out and that was one opening. And then Brian Murray Rescue's book came out last year about the immortality key, about possible use of psychedelics in the early church. And then uh, the conversation just heated up from there. And it's a much easier conversation now. It was I quit talking about it about a year after because I just I was getting nothing, and I knew when the study would c- came out and that's going to be next year, early next year. It would be a conversation, but I think that's going to be much easier because of everything that's happened in the last three years. But beginning with Michael Pollan's book, I think that was a big breakthrough. I know it was a big breakthrough. When I first heard about this study, and I tried to imagine being one of the participants and then coming home, you know, back to Seattle or. Kansas or Omaha or wherever. Mm-hmm. And it's almost as though you saw Santa Claus or Bigfoot. Like, how are you going to explain this to people without them kind of giving you a, a sidelong glance and changing the subject? I think at this point, it appears to me that you're beginning to build a coalition with people who are in the study. It seems like y'all are starting to speak together. And mm-hmm. uh, I think that's probably healthy for all of you mm-hmm. uh, who participated. At least, you know, someone out there knows right. what, you, what you've been through right. Right. and um, is able to kind of speak on the same language. But but let's let's let that rest. Let's let's forecast a little bit. So okay. tell me a little bit about 
the organization you've started, Ligare. Okay. Uh, tell me a little bit about that and uh, where that's going. Okay, good. I've started that because at some point last year, I realized there was no vehicle to bring back, to bring this good news about the healing power of psychedelics to the church, which part of the reason for the study was we want Christians and Jews and other religious people to know about this. All right, I've got these gifts. I've ha I had this huge gift of this experience, priest in the Episcopal Church, and I kind of know how to organize people. And so over time, I just realized I'm going to be, I need to be one of the people at least who's out front and talking about this and gathering others. And I've kept talking to the people at Hopkins. I talked to the funders of the study and some other people, and I just kind of discovered my own ministry again, which is, I haven't left the parish forever, but I'm taking a break from that to focus on this. And um, the time was right, and I did it. And it's, it's been such a gift to me, and uh, there's so much out there right now going on, and there's going to be more. So that's how it came to be. And the word ligare, Latin, it's the same root as ligament. It's also the same root as the word religion. So it means to bind or unite. And even had been used in the context of binding human and divine. So I couldn't believe, I knew that part. I could not believe that Ligare.org had not been snapped up by somebody. So I snapped that up. As soon as I thought that might be the name, I snapped that up. I think it works. I mean, it's a, it's a word that, it's kind of an inside baseball word a little bit, but I think it works. And once people realize that's what, it's the root of religion, the word, word of religion and ligament. And religion at its best binds us to God. Religion is the religion is a lot of things, but one of them is the way is the practices of the teachings and the practices of a particular school of thought. And so the Christian religion takes the Christian story and practice and binds us back to God at its best. So Ligari is not a religion, but it's it's bringing Christianity and psychedelics together. It's bringing people who've had psychedelic experiences, reminding them us that it comes from God. And uh, so there's lots of points of connection and binding. So that's the organization. And it's an organization of religious professionals and leaders, not just clergy, uh, plenty of lay people that need to be in the conversation, chaplains, spiritual directors, Christian educators, seminary professors. We have all of those people already. It's not a big group right now. We have maybe 150 people on our mailing list. Hopefully that's gonna grow pretty quickly. The core is the Christian people in the study, and then I'm connected with the Jewish, with the, with the rabbis in the study. We're all connected, and I'm gathered. There are a lot of clergy that have had psychedelic experiences in their younger years who, in some cases, went to ordination because of that. I hope they'll have eventually have space and cover to talk about that. I think they will, even though it was illegal. It's not going to be illegal for long, I hope. So our goal is to network and to educate and get Christians at least comfortable with psychedelic assisted therapy, with psychedelic assisted hospice care, with psychedelic assisted treatment for addiction and trauma, PTSD. That's coming. Christians can buy into it or not. We'll miss the boat if we don't buy into it, but we need to get comfortable with it. So getting people comfortable with it. And then uh, down the road, safe and legal access for those of us that don't need a clinical treatment, don't need necessarily psychedelic assisted therapy, but could use pastor assisted therapy or spiritual director assisted therapy in a safe setting. That's ultimately where I want us to be, but that's that's down the road. 
but um, normalizing this for mental health would be the beginning. And then clergy that can be conversant, special directors to be conversant or conversant in seminary classes about psychedelics and mysticism and seminary experiences of psychedelics would be top of the list in education and other people. It's not just about clergy. And uh, ultimately, lots of wonderful monasteries and retreat centers to go have a five-day experience where midway through, after praying and Bible study and chanting and silence and meditation, have an opportunity to have a retreat, psychedelic experience, next two days integrating that, and then you come back to your home congregation and there's a group of other people that have had that experience. That's the good, that's the dream. That's the that phrase BHAG, big, hairy, audacious goal. That's the BHAG, the big goal. But all these are important. And we have to take seriously the healing potential. The church must learn about and accept and support the healing potential for these terrible conditions that we have really not been successful at treating. Depression, anxiety, addiction, trauma. Yeah, I really, I really think it only takes a cursory examination of the right. studies to to con be convinced that um, this has very potent potential to help people with mental illness and trauma. Yeah. And so many of our churches are full of of such people. We're all right. there to to find God's comfort and healing for the traumatic experiences in our life, right. and try to channel all that into a positive way that serves us and the rest of humanity. This is going to be a contentious issue, I think, mm -hmm. in the church over the next 10 years. You're going to have people who jump on board immediately. You're going to have people who, and I say people, uh, might be more accurate to say wings, elements, institutions uh, yeah. within the Christian framework who are eager to begin this as an opportunity to help people. And then you're going to have people who are at odds with it. I don't know how to frame that opposition. I, I will say that that I'm sure most of it's coming from a good place. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I, I think the opposition to psychedelic assisted therapy will be coming from a place of concern for the well-being of people mm -hmm. and the well-being of society. I, I, although I would probably argue that that is misdirected opposition, but but I'm willing to accept that that's not um, that's not coming from just anger, bitter, angry, bitter people who aren't concerned about their fellow man, maybe coming from um, an uneducated perspective. Yeah. And and I think that's why I don't know if it, it was clear when you were speaking about it earlier. It appeared to me that education was at the forefront of, of what you're doing here. Yeah. Yeah. The education is at least right now the main goal. I mean, connecting people and educating all of us educating each other. I mean, there's no expert in this. There's no expert in Christian psychedelics or how to get Christians to be comfortable. Thank but goodness. We tell, I know, we tell our <laughs> stories. Again, the one thing we know in the church is we tell our stories. We are storytelling people. And that's where we encounter God is, is in the stories of others and our own stories and uh, stories of God's movement in the world. And that's my story about psychedelics is God was moving in me and through me. And I know that. And people have to have their own experiences or their own trust in that, but there's no forcing people believe that or know that, but um, the resistance will come. And, and there's also resistance to, in a purely spiritual way, that it's it's a shortcut. And I also understand, I understand why people are there. I also think there'll be a fear that this will replace what we're already doing in church. I don't think, I'm, that's not my interest. That's not my intention. 
I think it can deepen. I think I, like you asked me and I responded, it deepened my experience of liturgy and prayer and my meditation practice, my prayer practice, my sense of what anointing means. All of those things are much more important to me than they were before. That's my participation in the study. Yeah, to help people see this is not in place of church. This is just like a meditation retreat is in place of church. It's adds to the experience. And church is our place to go to be filled up week after week. But our spiritual life has to happen everywhere. And it should happen everywhere. Out in the woods, watching a sunset with friends over dinner and family, laughing. All, all the things that we do as humans, God is there. So if there's fear, there's misinformation, there's uh, ignorance in some cases. So all you shine a light, we keep shining a light on it and keep normal, normal people telling a story about a very not normal experience. <laughs> is, right. uh, we know we know a lot about mysticism in the church. We should and the, the mystics and lots of mystical experiences in scripture, a lot of mystical experiences in church history and theologians and our own individual non-psychedelic mystical experiences are plenty. And this is one way to do that. It's important to offer that. You know, our churches a lot often care about addiction as well. Where many Episcopal church method, lots of churches have twelve-step groups in them, so that's a part of our ministry. And there, I think, some concern in the twelve-step community that this is substituting one drug for another. And I understand where that's coming from uh, because that's what it looks like. But it's one non-addictive drug to facilitate a mystical experience for healing. It's always interesting for. 12-step folks to know that Bill W. used psychedelic assisted therapy in his own attempt to encounter a higher power. So even in that in that community, this is part of the history, important part of the history. So if we can all take a breath, something you said earlier, if we just all take a breath and appreciate that there's other perspectives and that we don't have all the answers, and we might be able to learn something from some people, just like the psychedelic community can learn from the religious community. They are, and I hope more, about how to ritualize things, how to value the story, how to believe in healing that's not medical. Yeah. So you you have a mailing list at Ligare, mm -hmm. and you're going to be sharing a lot of this information there, I believe. I might have received yeah, right. uh, yeah. an email today even, or yesterday. Yeah, so. yeah yesterday. Uh, yeah, so uh, how can people find that and get on that mailing list? It's Ligare.org is the website right now where we are in October is uh it's the mailing list is it and uh we're building content based on what people need to know about so we're doing some um every two or three weeks doing a forum on thursdays at noon eastern right now with people in the study and as part of that we're doing a little q a we're uh accepting in the chat it's on zoom so we're accepting in the chat box q a trying to answer those questions just to see where people are and organically building a network. There's no social media presence. It's word of mouth. It's word of mouth to be on an email list that will then give you access to these forums that we're doing so that we can see by the time the study's released where the pinch points are, where the controversy is, where the questions are, so that we can respond and have answers for people. One of the, one of the images we're using is it's like mushrooms, that there's all this work happening underground we're just below the surface, the, the, the mycelia is connecting. And when the conditions are right, mushrooms are gonna pop up. And there'll be, a, I hope a lot of Christian clergy who'll be like mushrooms who will say, we'll be able to be there and 
we're here and we're ready to talk about this. We're ready to answer your questions. We're ready to be in dialogue about this and ready to help move this forward, not just in the culture, but in the church. Well, I think that's important because once, uh, you know, the average churchgoer begins to intellectually pursue this, they're naturally going to gravitate to asking their religious leaders perspective on this. And and so if, if clergy are already educated about the benefits and the potential downsides and the studies that are currently in place, they're already going to be uh, equipped to answer their parishioners' questions. You know, they're not going to be, or, or even if they're not equipped, there's a right. place for them to go and find answers. And it's going to be, it's going to be from a perspective that's comprehensive. Right. And not, right. you know, not either overly excited about psychedelics or undermining the potential. It's just going to be, a, you know, an educated, well-equipped group of people who can right. shepherd them through and, and so they can navigate the information uh, right. with, conf with confidence and be able to answer the questions that come their way. Right. And that's, you're, that's what you're doing with your, that's what you're doing with this podcast. That's what I, I don't, I want there to be multiple ways this is getting, I want there to be a all over the country conversations. I want the Baptists to be having a conversation. I want the Episcopalians to be having a conversation together and separately. I mean, this is just the beginning. And the fact that you found me is a testament to what can happen. And there's, there's, that's going to just become exponential, I think. It is like a network. It's a network, and there's. I want want us to have nodes everywhere. I want there to be nodes of that network everywhere, and somehow we're con we're communicating even if we're not. We're finding a way to move forward together, because there's a desperate sense in the world. I, I sense of we're running out of answers to solve problems that we, in many cases, we've created, and uh, there's some despair. And I'm not saying psychedelics is going to solve everything, but it's at all. But it's going to it's going to get bring our mental health overall back to a much better place, and uh, we'll ch I hope change our raise our consciousness about what we're doing to each other and to the planet, and uh, wake us up. Psychedelics can be part of the awakened spiritual awakening that we're going to have to have to face, I think, some difficult times. Not to be negative or pessimistic, but we've got we've got big problems, huge problems that don't seem to have an answer at this point. And right. if we can expand our minds and open our hearts and trust our bodies and that God's moving in and all around that, we can, we can not just get through it, but come out better. I think we well, can, if evolve. there's, if there's one thing it's going to take evolve. to engage all those, all those difficulties that we see today in modern life, it's going to be compassion. And yeah. almost everyone I've spoken to about their psychedelic experience leaves with a greatly magnified sense of compassion. Mm -hmm. And if we can learn to lead with that, lead our conversations, lead our education, you know, re, re, lead our religious institutions with what we already profess to do anyway, which mm -hmm. is love and compassion. If we can actually do that, there's no challenge too great for humanity if we face it with love and compassion. And I think psychedelics might be one strong tool in that toolkit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, amen to that. Um, I think there's as you were as you were that was beautiful. And I also I think for me at least, the compassion that I first received from psychedelics was a compassion for myself. Uh I think a lot of us, people that are, you know, in positions of leadership or public positions, or all of us probably don't have a lot of compassion. We're hard on ourselves, we're critical of ourselves. And what what I became aware of pretty quickly was 
not just my own gifts, but my own striving that was coming from a place that wasn't helping me or my family or my community. And it's ego. And uh, the ego will kill compassion. <laughs> and we got to have an ego to stay alive. We got an ego to run from the woolly mammoth that's chasing us. I mean, there, there's a reason to have it. We got to have it. But it, it can't be in charge all the time. And psychedelics, brain science seems to indicate that psychedelics shut down the part of the brain that feeds the ego and the default mode network that gets shut down with psychedelics and opens up this space of compassion and love, beginning with ourselves and then for everyone else. So I, you're, you're exactly right. And if, if we get to harness the power of love, I think that was Teilhard de Chardin, that we, we wouldn't believe it. We would not believe the, what could happen if we harness that. And it's, it sounds like a uh, a trope, but you know, but we all know it's true. Mm -hmm. You know, we've all right. witnessed it in small ways in our lives. Right. You know, right. How how love and compassion overcame huge huge difficulties. But when we're faced with difficult circumstances, we become parochial and tribal. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's 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 a native instinct, and it, it's it's a self preservation instinct. And so, it's like you said, it's not in and of itself. The ego is not a negative thing. Hmm. Um, we just have to learn to not let it lead us. Right. If we can lead with love, but keep the ego back there to take care of us, you know, whenever it's needed, <laughs> you know, uh, you keep know, us safe. Keep us. Let it let keep it out of the cage safe. when we need to defend ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. The ego is not bad. It just needs to be kept in check. And I, yeah, lead lead with our hearts. Lead with love move forward trusting that god's present that people desire good for each other even though it doesn't look that that way sometimes most of us want others to be well and whole and thrive and we don't have to be afraid we don't have to be anxious we need to wake up and pay attention <laughs> well I, I can't think of a better way to end our conversation today than with that but if there's anything you have to leave us with any contact information any resources or any recommendations that you have for my listeners yeah um, if you want to lay that on us yeah or direct uh, anyone who's seeking more information about this or your work please let us know i will so i, I think the main thing is just don't be afraid be open to the healing potential of these substances and at least in the Christian and psychedelic space, one place to learn more is ligare.org, L-I-G-A-R-E.org. Sign up for the newsletter. You can unsubscribe if it gets annoying, but we don't overdo it. We mostly advertise or promote conversations once once every two or three weeks. They're usually on third. They're on Thursdays, usually every three weeks, and so, and then that'll give you access to other resources that we have. Mostly in the public domain, but they're curated and gathered, and we'll provide those. There's not just the science; you could go to Hopkins Psychedelics and uh, find that readily. But there's a lot of Christian thinkers that have been thinking about this for a long time. This is not a new conversation in Christianity either. It's 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 been going on for a while, certainly certainly since the '60s in Christianity. So, Indeed. yeah, Ligare.org and That'll, that'll get you access to what, at least what we have right now. Excellent. Well, it's been fantastic meeting you and I can't wait to see what the future of Ligare and the future of, uh, as Christians connect over this topic and share their experiences and, uh, continue to elevate the conversation. 
Right. I hope to be in touch with you on a regular basis. I've, uh, I think there's great promise in what you're doing, and I can't wait to see it come to fruition. Right. Well, I, I would say the same thing about what you're doing. Don't edit this out. Say the same thing about you, what you're doing. And uh, yeah, this will not, there'll be many conversations because I feel like what you're doing is exactly what I'm doing. It's just in a little bit different setting. You're, you're educating and gathering people in a powerful way. So you're, what you're doing is just as important as what I'm doing. So onward and up for both of us. I appreciate that. Uh, I mean it. I mean it. Appreciate that. Well, sir, I wish you grace and peace. Have Thank a beautiful, you. beautiful awesome. afternoon. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. I hope that conversation was as encouraging and enlightening for you as it was for me. It's obvious that Hunt's experience has inspired him to find new and exciting ways to serve Christ and the church. And if you would like to stay up to date on Hunt's work in this space, I encourage you to visit ligare.org, spelled L-I-G-A-R-E dot org, and subscribe to the newsletter. Also, if this is a topic that you would like to discuss with your Christian friends or religious leaders, please send them a link to ligare.org and a link to this podcast. As Hunt and I discussed, psychedelic therapy and legalization are on the horizon, and it's important that Christians are equipped to address the topic from an informed perspective, regardless of whether you decide that these substances and techniques have appropriate application for mental, physical, and or spiritual health in the Christian life. In parting, I would like to once again thank Reverend Hunt Priest for his being open and vulnerable enough to share his experience with us and joining us to participate in the ever-growing conversation on the topic of faith and psychedelics. Please subscribe to the podcast so you will not miss the next episode. And until then, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Mm -hmm.